Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, CEOs and founders that are driving the healthcare revolution in the UK and beyond. As everyone knows, well, regular listeners will know, I'm a health tech founder and CEO myself of a business called PocDoc. PocDoc is delivering digital pathways such as the cardiovascular pathway, including blood tests, just using your phone all over the UK now with the NHS and scaling out through pharmacies. I mentioned that because PocDoc are a long-term supporter of the show um, and also to make everyone aware that I am within the health tech industry as opposed to just someone outside it that doesn't really know what they're talking about. So as ever at the top of the show, I like to say thank you very much for everyone for listening. If you're listening live on UK Health Radio, welcome as ever. Thank you very much for tuning in. We love the live audience. Thank you very much to Johan and his team at UK Health Radio as ever for the platform. Um, Also, if you are catching up on any of the podcast channels, whether you're listening directly to the Health Tech Hour channel or you're, you, or you're downloading this as a podcast from the UK Health Radio channel, whether that's Spotify or anything like that. Welcome. Thanks for catching up. Please check out all of our other podcasts. We've got some awesome ones. Our show last week, our show before this was an absolute banger with um, a guy called the CEO of uh, Cellcentric dealing with epigenetic cancer markers. Really, really fascinating. So check that out if you have some time. Um, this week's show changing it up a little bit it deals with a very sensitive and emotional area which is uh, children's health specifically children with cancer uh, i know many people listening will um may have been through this or may have been affected by this some of you listening may be being affected by this right now um it's it's really important area there's there's around half a million children in the world right now who are suffering with cancer um, it is an emotional area, but we are going to talk about it because there's lots of incredible people such as my guest and her company who are trying to make things better for children and families that are suffering in this situation. I am a father of three, though, so I, I apologize in advance if I get emotional because it is quite an emotional area. Um, so according to our guest today, Francesca Woodkey, CEO of NEN, N-E-N, children struggle to understand the tools and scales and words that are being used by oncologists to assess their pain and discomfort as they move through the cancer treatment pathway. Um, All of those scales and the measures and the language was all developed with adults in mind, not with children in mind. Uh, Children obviously communicate differently than adults about lots of different things, Uh, not just pain, but but specifically in this instance, it's, it's been proven to be difficult to apply or or suboptimal to apply tools, scales, language, methods that work well for adults to children. So NEN's mission is to deliver digital solutions in this area that are specifically designed for children. So Francesca, welcome to the show. How are you? 
Thanks so much, and thanks for having me. Um, apologize for some of the background noise, but I just landed in Gatwick, so hopefully I found a quiet spot for the Yeah, for the I, I think, podcast. as we said before the show, this is the first time that we've ever had a live show with someone in a restaurant, but <laughs> we're just going to, we're live radio, we're going to roll with that anyway. You know, what's the worst that can happen? But for those listeners who do hear someone taking an order in the background or, or whatever it is, then that's that's what's going on, just to let everybody know. Um, so let's get started. So, Francesca, why don't you give us a little bit of background on how you came to be doing this in this particular area? Because I think it's a really interesting story. Sure. So I've um, I've been a, a researcher, a digital health venture capitalist, a bi- bi- biotech private equity investor, um, and a and I'm a recovering pharma person, but I've for the past 30 years or so, I've been developing drugs and I've been involved in, in healthcare. My last role was as a chief digital officer for a global company in, in Barcelona, uh, where I'm based. But I really wanted to do something that was closer to the patient um, and that really had more of an impact on, on patients' lives. So I put my consulting hat back on and did a scan of the whole of the digital health landscape to find um, where were there gaps. And that gap analysis was really focused on, can we solve for some of those gaps via digital therapeutic solutions? I feel strongly that that's the fourth wave of medicine. So small molecules, biologics, cell and gene therapy, and now digital therapeutics. In that effort, I was really surprised by how few solutions exist for kids. There's really very little activity in the pediatric digital health space. I had worked on a pain solution for adults and saw how readily you can translate that to a digital platform and thought, you know, why not develop that for kids? And so I founded Men to help kids with cancer and their families and healthcare teams manage their pain through evidence-based solutions. Okay. Well, there's a lot in there we're going to get into. So I always... um. I always like to try and kind of unpick some of the jargon, you know, because we're a broad church of, of a show. So um, how would you define digital therapeutics? You know, we have a range of people that listen, healthcare professionals right the way through to just people in general interest in health. So like, what is a, a digital therapeutic? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that unfortunately, there's not a tremendous amount of clarity on, but I'll, I'll do my best here. Your, so your opinion digital... is fine. We'll take your opinion to start. <laughs> That's the only one that matters digital... for the next 45 minutes. A digital therapeutic is software as a medical device. So when I first heard that you can deliver therapies um, via digital means, I was skeptical at best. Um, but it's true. The, there's tremendous um, experience and evidence that suggests that uh, delivering solutions digitally can have a huge impact on outcomes. And what we're doing is um, we're using something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a form of psychotherapy that helps to kind of reframe negative uh, memories into more positive ones and help children, in this case, manage their pain better. So we're using cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT delivered digitally. Um, We're gamifying it. So we're making it into a fun game. So children don't realize they're getting therapy, but are actually benefiting from what they're learning in their journey through the game. Yeah. So don't know who the, 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 the most, I guess, um, the digital therapeutic that hit the headlines, I guess, 
in the UK at least that people may have heard of is Sleepio, which um, for those of you who don't know, was uh, it's actually been around for a really long time, an app around um, helping people sleep. So um, insomnia app. And recently they got it effectively approved by the healthcare service as something that can be prescribed by your GP instead of melatonin or sleeping tablets or whatever it happens to be. So it's an app that is good enough at treating the specific problem that you have that it can be prescribed like a medicine, basically. Is that fair, Francesca? That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. And there there are a number of them. There are a few within the diabetes space that have been shown to have better outcomes for patients when used. Um, there are many in the in the physical therapy space or in the physio space where patients can use these tools instead of going to um, physiotherapists because there is such a backlog of um, of patients waiting on these on these wait lists. So there are a variety of different approaches where um, where digital therapeutics can be used. They're also used a lot in the mental health space as an adjunct to um, to therapy either for depression, anxiety. For PTSD in the the pediatrics realm, for ADHD, so there are a number of applications um, where these products can be prescribed and, as you said, reimbursed by health systems across the world. Sort of like the holy grail, right? It's like it's not about. It's all well, and you can make an application that people use, and that's fine. But if you are able to then, and it's not to say that if you're not a digital therapeutic or you're not able to be reimbursed it doesn't have value for people and there are lots of examples of apps that, that that are in that category but if you can become prescribed like a medicine that's obviously the holy grail i suspect yeah i think the difference between a digital therapeutic and a wellness app for example is the strength of the scientific evidence both that goes into building it but also the evidentiary requirements from a, a clinical validation perspective so in order for our product to be prescribed and reimbursed, we have to go through extensive clinical trials as a therapeutic, a traditional therapeutic for Hillwood, um, and also go through regulatory processes that are that are quite rigorous. What um what specifically are you kind of what and then we'll jump back into more of the bigger picture, but seeing as you brought it up, what specifically are you comparing yourself to, against in this space? Like what's the what's the baseline? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the cognitive behavioral therapy, we know that when applied, it works. Um, and the efficacy is very, very good. The issue here is that there are too few um, pediatric psychologists to deliver that therapy. Um, so most kids don't have access to them. We have a research collaboration with the largest uh, European uh, pediatric cancer center. They expect to see 2,000 patients with cancer per year, and they have one pain psychologist. So, you know, it's when the children have exposure to CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, they do really well, and they're better able to manage their pain. But most of the kids just don't get um, get access to the these physicians. So typically in hospitals, they're triaged based on pre-existing mental health issues. So if they're in front of a a pediatric psychologist, and that psychologist happens to be trained in pain management, then they may get CBT-associated pain management. But otherwise, you know, they have to wait six months or so. I was talking to a parent yesterday from the U.S., 
And she said that her uh, child's mental health is not covered and she has to pay between 280 and 370 per visit for her child to, to get the care that, that she needs and that she's benefiting from. Wow, that's a lot of money. It is, yeah, unfortunately, and it excludes most families from, from that level of care. So how did you end up focusing on this, not just pedi- not, not just pediatrics, but this particular sort of area of pain management within children who have cancer? I mean, it's sort of a bit of a circle within a circle, in a sense. So how did you get to that point? It is, you know, our ultimate goal is to provide pain management to all kids who stand to benefit from it. We're starting with cancer because it's an area of huge unmet need. And there's a real sense of helplessness on the, the part of both the healthcare providers as well as the parents of these children. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there are, are half a million kids battling cancer globally, and nearly all of them will experience pain. Today, 47 kids will be diagnosed with cancer. Um, there's not a lot that can be done when these kids are, are in pain, apart from you know, giving them paracetamol, <clears throat> pardon me, every few hours. Um, but what's worse is that these children are at really high risks, a risk of medical trauma because of the type of treatment that they're that they're receiving. And these negative pain memories that they're generating can induce expectations of greater pain in the future and are very linked to pain persistence and chronic pain through survivorship and into adulthood. So a child that's undergoing cancer treatment now is far more likely to feel chronic pain as an adult, even though there's no somatic or, or physical cause of that pain it's because the psychological aspects of pain have not been appropriately addressed so when you look at imaging studies um physical pain um and emotions are processed in the same loci and both live in the brain so we need more approaches that modulate pain and that target the psychological aspects of of pain to break these cycles so, um, okay, to go back just a step, you said that, and, and you know, I've not been directly in a situation where one of my children has, has, has had cancer at, the, at this point, touch wood. Um, but what you mentioned that the only pain therapy that they can get or therapeutic is paracetamol. Is that because they're, because as children, they're unable to access anything stronger that the adults might have access to? I've, I'm unfamiliar with the pathway, basically. I'm just... The the assumption in all children is pain. So from the perspective of the the nurses, the anesthesiologists, um, children as standard of care, at least in the countries I've spoken to in Europe and in the U.S., receive uh, paracetamol or ibuprofen every six hours as a as a matter of course. When the children have pain that's um, that's far superior to that, they do receive opioids and ultimately they need to be sedated for their pain. But if they're also given cognitive behavioral therapy while they're experiencing that pain, their levels of pain are significantly attenuated. Um, we're hopeful that we can demonstrate a reduction in opioids as a result of, of our therapy as well. It's, it's less of an issue in terms of dependency for children who are in hospital because they're very, very well looked after. 
But as we broaden to chronic pain more broadly, and these children have experienced their illness their whole life, and they're used to self-medicating, that starts getting a little bit tricky when they're starting to self-medicate at 13, 14 years old, and that can lead to issues of um, of, of abuse later in life with opioids. Is there um is there data around that pathway that sort of childhood chronic pain, childhood self-medication, it you know opens up those pathways more readily to sort of future addiction or substance problems? There are, and in part, it's just due to access. These children do need to self-medicate because they are in pain. Um, they become tolerized with um, the, the doses they're on and need more and more of the opioids to have an effect. Um, and that can certainly lead to to addictions. Our, our hope, and based on what we've seen from the literature and from um talking to clinicians is that if you can administer CBT to these kids, um, they're better able to, to manage their pain in the short and long term. Okay, so let's jump into that. So how, I mean, I'm familiar with the concept of, of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, but it, it also seems like quite a broad church that gets used for lots of different things and talked about in lots of different ways. Um, and I'm sure it means lots of different things to lots of different people. And what some people think it is, some people think it isn't, and vice versa. So it, w- within the area of, of pain management, dealing with pain, what does how does cognitive behavioral therapy work or potentially work or could work? Yeah, so, you know, CBT is clinically validated and well-established therapy. We know CBT works. We're just digitizing it as, at scale. And the purpose of CBT is to change some of these negative pain memories and associations into something that's a, a bit more positive. So an excellent example, Grace, um, our cognitive, um, I'm sorry, our, our pediatric psychologist uh, gave us this, this anecdote when her child had um, his first job for COVID, it was fine, too. He uh, didn't think much of it. But then um, after his arm hurt quite a bit, he, um, he felt unwell. And so he was quite scared to receive the, the booster shot. So when he was presented with the booster, he became very upset. Um, and rather than just saying, don't worry, it'll be gone in a minute, because his mother's a professional, she said, um, you know what, last time you were really brave. I'm sure you'll be brave this time as well. And just that simple reframing of the negative situation into something more positive has a tremendous impact on the child and on the child's interpretation of their pain. Um, I, I think that's a very good case study. And I'm sure that like, you know, I know I can relate to that from, from on my own children's various inoculations and jabs and, and, and stuff like that. But how does that get kind of like transformed into a structure and a method and something that's scalable, right? Because that's kind of like a, a, you know, a one-time sort of intervention. But exactly. I'm yeah. How does that sort of evolve from there? I totally agree that that's a net good way to handle that situation. Um, but yeah, how does that scale up? So we're creating science-based gaming designed by clinicians with kids, uh, with parents. So we're using the the scripts, if you will, of the of the CBT and and putting it in the context that a child can understand. So children have a very difficult time separating mood from pain. And in partnership with our clinical team and our clinical advisory board, we've developed virtual companions to help guide the children on their journey. 
And these companions are the ones delivering CBT. So through play, they'll be learning lessons through stories. They'll be um, learning different coping mechanisms and activities, things like progressive muscle relaxation or dia diaphragmatic breathing that can help them manage their pain in the moment. It can also help teach them how to manage their emotions associated with pain um, while, they're, while they're feeling it as well. Um, well, we can dive into that a bit more in the second part of the show. So we're going to go for a short commercial break now, and then we will be back with Francesca Woodkey, the CEO and founder of NEN, um, a child, a children's cancer pain, digital pain management um, provider. Um, yeah, we'll be right back. See you in two minutes. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Apples and pears, beef and skittles, cider with rosy, common or garden, ant and deck, fish and chips, mum and dad. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at ukhealthradio.com. Once upon a time, human slavery was just a fact of life. Right now, animal abuse is often considered normal. In time, it won't be. Animal Aid campaigns peacefully against all forms of animal abuse and promotes cruelty-free living. Check out animalaid.org.uk. It's time for a kinder world. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest, Francesca Whitkey, who is the CEO of NEM. So before the break, we started to get into the whole how, how the actual how your process and how your platform sort of sort of works. So how what are the different areas of CBT that you focused or, or that deal specifically with pain management or, or that are most useful in pain management? I think you're still on mute, by the way. Sorry about that. So there are several. <laughs> Um, we've chosen the ones that have the biggest impact on pain, both from um, from clinical practice, but also from the scientific literature. Things like biobehavioral activation, some cognitive strategies to teach children about pain. For example, that pain lives in the brain and that they do have some autonomy and control over it. Things like psychoeducation, some lifestyle changes, just getting children into routines to, to give them some control over their lives also gives them a bit more um, autonomy over their their pain management. And then when pain is, is really bad, some distraction techniques to just get them thinking about other things. One of the questions we often get is, well, why not just put children in front of Peppa Pig and call it a day? Um, di distraction works in the minute but it doesn't cause the real neurobehavioral change that will allow the child to manage their pain over time 
and have that that sustained effect. How I mean, what what's currently happening in you know pediatric oncology around this area in terms of pain management? And, and I know on your website they read things about asking children to assess their pain or, or scale their pain is based on adult sort of um, literature and processes and things like that. So what is currently happening? So I'm assuming if you're a pediatric oncologist, you're quite used to dealing with children with cancer. That's kind of your job. But so is it is it that they they don't have the tools, they don't have the time, it, that they don't what 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 what's what's really going on there? Yeah, it's it's interesting. When when I started out on this journey, I assumed that the pediatric oncologist would be our biggest stakeholder. Uh, we've spoken to a lot. Um, one of them was very honest in saying, "Look, my job is to cut it out, zap it out, or infuse it out." Everything else that has to do with the child has to be someone else's um, responsibility, which I completely see. It must, it's one of the most difficult jobs in the world, and that must be a, a way to, to cope and to, to continue doing what, what you're doing every day. Um, it's the pediatric anesthesiologists, the pediatric psychologists. In some countries, there's a role called the child life specialist. And that person is looking after the well-being of the child and the family. Um, these are the folks that are quite frustrated because there's very little that can be done for a child when they're in pain. Um, unfortunately, the COVID, COVID pandemic has added to the attrition of, of psychologists in general, but disproportionately to pediatric psychologists. And while there were few of them before the pandemic, um, there are even fewer of them now. So again, it becomes a, an issue of, of access for these kids. Um, they're just not in front of the right practitioners to deliver the care that they really need. Okay. And so it, that's where digital technologies can come in. And so w w what's been the reaction from, you know, families, children, clinicians, psychologists to, to Dave? Yeah, you know, we were a little bit concerned that the psychologists wouldn't be as welcoming um, because this is um, impinging on their turf a little bit. Um, but we, yeah. actually, we actually had the opposite reaction. You know, these, um, these are very dedicated folks that go into their, um, their field and become experts because they really want to benefit children. And they were frustrated by the fact that they couldn't get to as many kids as they wanted because their wait lists were so long. Um, and they saw this as an, a, as an opportunity to give care to kids um, in a way that, that they can't do in their, in their current practice. So they've actually been incredibly welcome, welcoming in terms of um, sharing their expertise with us and um and making sure that we're staying true to the science from the from the very beginning and throughout the whole process the parents have been um really generous with their time sharing their experiences their children's experiences and you know just this overwhelming sense of helplessness that there's not a lot that they can do for their child you know we've heard things that um when we, we've created these parents forums so we can talk to them, both international forums and forums from specific countries because pain is really interpreted quite culturally. 
So we want to make sure that we're addressing different aspects of pain across as many cultures as we can. And when we... Sorry, sorry, go on. Carry on, sorry. (laughs) And when we share um, what we're looking to do with them, you know, they so far have all unanimously said that this could really have been useful when their child was in treatment or is useful now for their child. Um, You know, it's really difficult as a parent to watch your child suffer. Um, and having an option to to give them something that the child enjoys and thinks is fun is um, it has been really welcomed by by families. Yeah, I can see that. So just you mentioned there that there's um, a cultural difference in terms of how different cultures did assess pain or talk about pain. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Because that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I was um, I was a bit surprised by that as well, because kids are kids and um, children, you know, I think react similarly to the platform. But the way um, parents are such a key influencer in the child's interpretation of pain that they very much take their cues from their parents. Um, I am also a mom. I have, I have three boys. Um, when they were children, I noticed this in the playground. There were those parents that um, that would what we would call now pain did pain catastrophization. You know, a child would fall, it would run over and immediately the tears would come from the child. Um, Then there was kind of the other flavor of parent that I think I found myself um, in that, in that group where when the child falls, you kind of clap and smile and cheer. And if the child's not hurt up, they get and they continue playing. So in taking those cues, how the parents perceive um, pain becomes a really crucial component. So that's done quite differently across different cultures. Some cultures, baby, if you will, their their kids a bit more than others. Some are a bit more stoic, and um, understanding that uh, that stoicism or that coddling is really important because it it directly impacts the the child. So we, based on on learning about this, we've developed a whole suite of services specifically for parents to give them things like uh, parental modeling and social learning, even scripts, you know, what's the right thing to say that supports and reinforces some of the adaptive coping that the children are learning on the platform in a way that's positive and supportive of, of these, these kids. You know, as a parent, we always want to do whatever's best for our children, but we're trying to give some of these parents the the tools so that their child they can help their child get the best outcomes from the therapy. That's really really interesting. This idea that that you're more generally there's an element of in of, of um hereditary attitude towards pain or or certainly learned rather attitude towards pain. Um, I also think it's really interesting that that you frame the um. The issue here is as much pain in the moment and trying to understand and deal with with a with a bad situation and a difficult situation for the child in the moment, as well as protect the child against future um, emotional mental health issues. So is that something that has been well known for a while that sort of pain in, you know, pain um, in in, in the um, in the moment can then sort of have these future knock on effects with potential mental health issues, addiction, substance abuse, that type of thing. Yeah, and you know, we've um we've written a white paper. So Bethany Rains, uh Dr. Rains has written um a white paper about the pain persistence. Uh, she's our cognitive neuroscientist on our team. Um 
And, you know, there's a real link to medical trauma in, in childhood or in adolescence and that, that pain persistence into, into adulthood. So, um, you know, one of the moms I was speaking to recently said that her child has very severe PTSD as a result of her cancer treatment. So, you know, even going into a, a hospital or a medical center or, or a doctor's clinic is quite traumatic for her. So, you know, now she's seeking the, the support of, of a pediatric psychologist um, because at the time that was not something that was, that was offered to her. She feels strongly that had she been offered, had her child been offered um, more care in the moment, that she would have had a better time dealing with um, the aftermath uh, in through survivorship. That's not necessary. Do you think that relates to CBT more specifically or just generally emotional support during a traumatic health event or a bit of both? Well, I think, um, you know, these these health events are traumatic for children. So if they're exposed to CBT, uh, both for pain management, we also introduce um mental health care for these kids as well. So targeting CBT related to anxiety and depression because they're really intrinsically linked to the the interpretation of pain. So we do deliver sort of three verticals of CBT, if you will, pain management, anxiety, and depression. And the way we do that is via these these virtual companions. So Dolores, which means pain in Spanish, we're based in Barcelona, delivers CBT associated with pain and Sarah and Tony are more focused on the serotonergic receptor pathways, so mental health. So Sarah will deliver anxiety-related CBT. She'll ask the child questions like, are you scared? And then Tony will focus on depression. Are you sad? And, you know, scratching the, the surface to help the child not only to communicate and develop their vernacular to be able to communicate the differences between pain and mood, but also to, to help treat them. Um, that's a good, a good, a good segue actually into maybe you could walk us through what the, the gamification or how, how the actual how does it work? What, what does a child get? What do they get access to? And is it different for different ages and different conditions and different things? But what, why not give us a walkthrough? I think it would be really interesting. Sure. So, um, in terms of, I'll start with the, the last question first. So, in terms of whether it's different for different conditions. Um, what we're delivering is is digitized pain management. Um, we wanted it to be um, condition agnostic so that we can treat any child with pain. So whether that child has cancer or aplastic anemia or sickle cell or IBD or migraine or a congenital malformality, they'll receive in, um, in the clinic the same type of cognitive behavioral therapy. So we've just translated that onto our platform. We've gamifying it, gamified it so that the children enters into a land and they can go and um, through different parts of, of the, the journey through the game and learn different skills. So they can go to the worry mountain and then the, the worry monster comes out and, um, and explains um, you know, what they're feeling and, and helps them through some of the, the CBT um, for anxiety. Or they'll go to the sad lake where the, their dragon's tears had made, um, had made a, a big lake and they kind of help them, uh, navigate and swim out of that lake. So, um, there are a variety of ways that, um, the 
the children can go through this forest accompanied by their virtual companions that, um, you know, where they can learn about the conditions, they can empathize with the characters that they're finding along the way, um, and also see themselves in those characters. We, we had, um, a, a children's illustrator design a number of different potential virtual companions. Initially, they were human-like, um, but we really wanted the children to be able to identify with them um, and children all over the world. So um, only having three of them, we couldn't uh, cover all ethnicities, all, uh, all genders, all colors and shapes and sizes. And so we've created these fairy-like creatures, which is what the, the children selected. It was their, their favorite character. And um, and these are the virtual companions so that the children can really empathize with them um, and learn from them. We had one little girl say about Dolores that it's great. It's like having a brain, but that's also your friend, uh, which I think, you know, out of the mouths of babes. (laughs) Okay, and so they can do these different things. And then how do you how did can they is it self-guided or is there a program they have to follow or how does that work? It is. We, we nudge them to things that we want them to do first. Um, and then we put rules that all of this is, is, um, is invisible to the kids, but we put rules so that they don't go down a rabbit hole. You know, they can only do a certain activity X number of times before they're gently shunted to, to some other activity. Um, you know, they're encouraged to meet Dolores's friends, Sarah and Tony, and, and based on that, they can they can learn you know different skills and and um and go through different modules within the within the program. Um, the idea is that they would receive a full course of CBT uh, through through play through um, exploring the the different lands in the in the game, um, but it it is largely self driven. So the children can do what they like, which is important. I think that autonomy piece does give them a, a bit of a sense of control that allows them to to better manage themselves and, and their condition. But it is physician agnostic. So they can do this without the care of a, a medical provider. How extensive is the world that they're in? I mean, how much time is recommended that they spend in there? Or how 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 yeah, how how extensive is it? We, we're continuing to build it up every day. We're hoping that the kids um, will spend about 10 minutes over over several weeks. Current um, CBT pain management is a course of six to eight sessions, about a 45-minute sessions each one. Um, we've made the each session that the child has to sit through shorter because these are kids that are 7 to 12. And, um, you know, we want them to have... A, full attention in the minute and then um, they can move on and do something else after. Okay. I think that sounds fantastic. And so um, we're going to pick this up in the final part of the show, um, but we will be back after our final commercial break back in two minutes with Francesca Woodka, the CEO and founder of NEN. We'll be right back. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Animal Aid campaigns peacefully against all forms of animal abuse and promotes cruelty-free living. We've been doing this for over 40 years. Every year, 
more and more people are living satisfying lives completely cruelty-free. Check out animalaid.org.uk. It's time for a kinder world. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest this week, Francesca Woodkey, the CEO and founder of NEM. So, um, are, how how with this are you able to, or are you intending to measure success? I think it's more generally with CBT. How do you measure? How do you know, or, or prove, or demonstrate that by playing the game, by going through these different things, by doing these exercises, that that you have improved versus whatever the previous baseline was now what i would say obviously if the if the baseline is a zero because the child is receiving zero care then i i can sort of understand that you know that's obviously an uplift but how, how do you guys think about it yeah we're using a variety of of mechanisms to measure pain that are currently used in in the clinic so um for the purposes of the clinical validation, we have the physicians reporting the pain outcomes. There are scales that they use in, in the in clinic that um, that we're applying. We also have parent reported outcomes. So we're using measures that have been co-created and co-developed between parents and healthcare providers. And then the platform itself, um, the results of the CBT modules, we ask them questions throughout. Um, we check their ouch levels, their comfort levels. So we have kind of before and afters that um, that we're able to assess how the child's progressing through their game, um, how their pain is progressing, how their mood is progressing. And all of that can be displayed in a dashboard for parents to share with their healthcare teams. So the same um, outcome measures that are used in in-person CBT we've applied on the, the platform. So we're able to compare like to like. And how are the healthcare systems or how are healthcare systems viewing the pathway for something like this to be commissioned or reimbursed? Or how do they think about this type of thing in this instance? It's a bit of spaghetti at the, at the moment. There's not a tremendous amount of harmonization across uh, geographies. Um, there is with regard to the regulatory processes. So in most countries, um, software as a medical device is regulated as a medical device, and that's the regulatory path it goes through. Reimbursement is a, a whole that's other ball of wax. Yeah, yeah, with each country having their, their own take. Uh, we're looking to launch in EU5, UK, and US, um, and are approaching those systems differently from a health economics point of view. Um, yes, yeah, I know that Germany, for example, has a very clear framework that you can apply to, the DIGA framework, D-I-G-A, D, yeah, D-I-G-A. 
Um, but yeah, the other ones, it's a bit bit of a yeah, bit different, I suspect. Yeah, they're they're all they're all quite different. Um, in Spain, where we're based, only the private insurers are currently reimbursing digital therapeutics. In the UK, there's a path through NH to NHS. Um, in the US, there's uh, it's very fragmented. There's a mix of public and private payers, Medicaid and Medicare. Um, you know, but we're hoping that uh, by the time we've finished all of our clinical validation. The path will be a bit clearer, and there'll be a bit more harmonization across geographies. So are you going exclusively for this route where you become a digital therapeutic, as opposed to being an app that's available for people to buy and use themselves? It's a it's a question, and where our goal is ultimately to be a prescribed and reimbursed standalone digital therapeutic. But we want to get men out to as many families as we can. So in the early days, while we will be testing and iterating, and we plan to go to market with a, a lighter version of the product um, this January. Um, direct to parents. We are also working with hospitals. We have about 15 hospitals that are interested in partnering with us so far um, in the year that, that we've been formed. And some of those hospitals have expressed an interest in white labeling our product um, to be used as part of their enterprise-wide concierge care pain management within their systems. So, you know, there are a number of approaches and, and ultimately revenue streams that we're going to be accessing apart from only the, um, the prescription route. Things are still up in the air in many, in many respects with regard to um, digital therapeutics. So we wanted to, um, to curb some of that regulatory risk by having different paths to market. And what are the kids saying that have used it and developed it and worked with you? Like, what's their feedback on the whole thing? Well, kids, as you know, are are brutally honest, both for for better or worse. So yeah, they, I know that. <laughs> they've, um, you know, we've been working with kids now for over a year, um, and and really working with them not only on the design, the functionality, but taking their their comments and their imagination into account in designing and building the platform. So routinely we meet with kids, uh, whether they're healthy kids or they're sick kids. Uh, we have a session, a focus group session with um, with ten kids coming up in a couple of weeks, where we're you know at different points in our process we've shown them the the platform. And um, and taking their feedback very much into account, um, you know, I would I would corner younger siblings at, at football games and and show them the the platform and ask for their feedback. And the kids really get a kick out of it because they see they see the platform evolving. They also get a T shirt that says Nan Tester, which makes them super happy. They love a free bit of swag. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And it's been cute. They they kind of show it off at school, and it's become this little this little club of kids that are that are helping us out. Um, and then you know, with the with those sicker kids, they give us their perspective. You know, what helped them in the moment, and for some of them, it was petting their dog, or it was talking to their older sibling, and or it was playing a video game. And so we've tried to incorporate some of those elements into um, into the program as well. So as part of their bedtime routine, they can choose to go and pet their dog for five minutes and um, and that will help them feel better. Yeah, that, that, I, can, I can see that. And so what, what have been some of the biggest challenges so far um, 
around starting the company and getting to the point that you've gotten to? So I would say what's maybe what surprised me most uh, about this process is just the the generosity. People have been so generous with their time, with their expertise, um, parents, practitioners. Um, you know, we have two amazing advisory boards that have been given us, giving us um, so much good advice and really momentum. The most difficult thing this year about starting um, a, a digital health company has just been, you know, the the economic um, environment. It's a, it's a tough time it's out, there. out there. It's great out there. What are you talking <laughs> yeah, about? Banks aren't failing. Big companies aren't having headline <laughs> oh, bankruptcies. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's been a, a bit tricky. Um, we've been raising money via angel investors and continue to do so. And we're hoping to kind of wait out the storm or the tornado or any other meteorological, um, you know, thought to try to to get us through the end of this year and then raise our Series A that will fund the um, the clinical validation. So if anyone out there is interested in supporting us and helping us, happy to have you reach out. Where do they find you? Is it NEN? NEN.health? NEN.health. That's yeah. right. Okay. So I want to turn back to something that you said that I wrote down right at the beginning on my notes, on my show notes that I do as we go. Um, and it was around the kind of funding and innovation and how much money goes into kids therapies, as in not very much versus adults. And yeah. I wanted to and it's not the first time that I've heard that just in general, but also on the show, the sort of innovation in in in, in children. I don't necessarily know if I mean treatment because sometimes it's the same drugs, you know, but, mm -hmm. but more just in the everything around it has a bit of a lack of investment. Yeah. And so why do you think that is or if that's not true? I think it's absolutely true. So kids represent uh, about 25 percent of our population, but they're 100 percent of our future. There's only about 4% of research dollars that goes into pediatric specific activities. There are hundreds of, uh, just using oncology as an example, there are hundreds of oncology drugs that have been approved for adults and less than 20 for kids that are specifically made for kids. And kids are not just short humans. They have very different physiology. They're wired differently. Their cognitive levels are very different than that of an adult. Um, so it's really a shame that more focus isn't put on children. And it's true that the majority of children are healthy. Um, but the numbers of children that, um, that really need specific and specialized care should more than justify the, the research and the efforts that, that go into, um, you know, pediatric research and, and designing things specifically for kids. That's been one of the red threads throughout everything that we've done is designing kid centric care for kids with kids, um, and making sure that we have that, that input from them. Um, you know, it's, it's a pity that more isn't being done for, for children and having lived in the, the world of, of pharma for many, many years, it just has not been an area of, um, of focus. Is that, is that because it's, is it harder somehow to run trials, drug trials with children on children? Is it just, it's just, is it more risky? It's, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't know anything about that. 
Well, they're, they're phys- it is more risky. Their physiology is different. Um, when you talk about children, you know, it, it's a really broad range. A two-year-old is very different than a seven-year-old, than a 12-year-old, than a 16-year-old, an 18-year-old. And so in designing these trials, they have to be really age-specific and weight-specific. And for things like, you know, psychological interventions, they have to be modified to be appropriate for children at the level uh, that you're testing. So it is a lot of work. That's quite a lot more complicated, isn't it? It is. It is. So, you know, initially we're testing in seven to 12 year olds um, because that's where the basis of scientific evidence is the strongest. But uh, originally we wanted to start with the littles, the two to six year olds, because there's just nothing for them. Um, But what we found is that the baseline of evidence was pretty flimsy. So we're looking to validate in the population where the evidence is the strongest and then use that to go into the littles. But, you know, there's a lot that we have to change within the platform. They can't read for one thing. So it it all has to be spoken and through storytelling because, you know, they're not able to do a task. A two-year-old isn't able to do a task that a 10-year-old can do. So a lot of modifications have to go into it. Um, even within the the seven to twelve year old range, that's a big range. Um, so we've asked the some so of our yeah so different to a twelve year old completely I mean, that's enormous. And we didn't want the twelve year old to feel like what they were doing was too babyish or childish. So we had to ask some of our cooler eleven and twelve year olds to vet the platform, and and they said, no, no, it's good. <laughs> we like it. <laughs> Doesn't have like a live. TikTok feed in it or anything? <laughs> Not <Okay>. yet, no. <laughs> um, probably for the best. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I can see that. So I think if if that makes sense now, thinking about how that can apply to all aspects of the medical device and drug discovery, it just becomes yeah. harder and harder because you 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 have to focus on such different age ranges and different makeups of individuals, which just makes what you're doing much much harder and therefore more expensive and therefore. Um, yeah well let's not bother I guess is the sort of overriding situation and in in many cases the return isn't there to justify the investment um you know we're building a profit for purpose company so yes we do have to have a venture capital backed company in order to fund the clinical validation studies but we're also creating the NEN foundation which will help us democratize care to kids all over the world and that'll be funded by grassroots organizations and NGOs to make sure that um, that we can get this to kids all over. So we do have an arm that is not revenue or will not be revenue generating, but it's intended to um, to help kids to treat them. Presumably, I mean, these issues just exist everywhere, all over the world, in every single society. I'm sorry, Steve, I, I didn't catch that last I said um, these issues persist all over the world in all societies. They do. They do. And we have a way to very quickly translate into many different languages. So we have our scripts, if you will, written in English first. Then we put them into ChatGPT and ask for translations in the voice of a 10-year-old. And it's been amazing. We always have a, a human native speaker vet that. And then we test it with kids from that culture and from that language. But, you know, we can ask ChatGPT to to do this on, on our behalf and the results are amazing. So instead of saying something convoluted like, 
learning these um, coping skills will help you better manage your pain in the short and long term. Um, what we'll put into the platform is we're going to teach you stuff that makes you feel better, which is much more approachable for a, for a young child. And that goes through ChatGPT. That did the ChatGPT zone. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It is pretty, pretty cool. cool. So, so we can trans translate into any language within less than a week. Yeah, a, I mean, it's a brave new world, isn't it? Really. Yeah, we'll have uh, eight languages by uh, by by the end of this month, so in a couple of days. That's amazing. Yeah, that's very exciting. Um, so, in the last couple of minutes of the show. We, I always like to, particularly when we have entrepreneurs on, I like to ask them just what advice would you give to other people that are starting out, trying to do it, doing what, like, what, what, you know, what, what, what keeps you on mission? What keeps you sane? I think having a mission keeps us on mission. Um, doing something that we're hopeful will bring some good into the world and will help families makes it a lot easier to wake up in the morning and keep fighting for these kids because it's a fight. You know, it's not, um, Having a founding a startup is is not an easy road. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you have to be quite uh, persistent and and persistent and, and patient. And patience isn't something that I uh, I do very well. Um, but you know, it's it's important when um, when the mission is there, the team can really get behind that mission. When there are long days, which there invariably are in a startup. Um, it helps to know that you're doing something for for good. I completely agree with that. I mean, I think I would emphasize and, and sort of reinforce that that element of the importance of the mission for sure. Um, so that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for coming on, Francesca. Francesca Woodkey, the founder of Nen. Um, where do they? Where do people go? Nen Health. Nen.health. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. You're very welcome. And thank you to everyone for listening. We'll be back again next week with another show. Thank you very much. Seven days since you went and found some space. I tell myself I'm doing great and I'm not holding on.